Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clote in Washington, D.C. So the hope and the aspiration at the UN is that we will come together as a global community and understand that these threats with which we are faced, these exogenous shocks, need a new response. The Secretary General of the Commonwealth calls for strong multilateral relationships to solve pressing challenges around the world. The local infrastructure is not in a position to absorb these numbers and many of them if not most are women and children so we need to unite around bringing in the resources for these people to be able to have enough food enough medicine and shelter all of this is urgent the president of the international committee of the red cross calls for urgent action to help sudanese refugees his popularity is ever on the increase because now people are able to compare between what he did and what the current president is doing. And uh, the current government seems to want to suggest that he can't move from his house. That's what they seem to want to suggest. And the lawyer for former Zambian President Edgar Lungu says it is illegal for the police to attempt to prevent him from jogging. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. <music> The Secretary-General of the Commonwealth of Nations is calling for strong multilateral relationships to solve pressing challenges around the world, including climate change and the war in Ukraine. Patricia Scotland, who made the call during the recent UN General Assembly in New York, expressed hope that the global community will address the threats posed by exogenous shocks, which she adds need a response. Her remarks come as observers call for a solution to the climate crisis and the need to resolve the Ukraine war, which they say is having a toll on supply chains, causing economic challenges to the less wealthy nations. I sat down with Patricia Scotland on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. Topics included Scotland's hopes for the UN high-level debate, the outcomes of the Commonwealth Foreign Affairs and Environment Ministers meeting, as well as why her organization is attracting non-English-speaking countries that have applied to join the group. Here is part one of the conversation. So the hope and the aspiration at the UN is that we will come together as a global community and understand that these threats with which we are faced, these exogenous shocks, need a new response. And if you look at the Bretton Woods uh, alignment that we had from 1945, which was absolutely fit for purpose then, we have to say, is this alignment fit for purpose for the 21st, 22nd century. Because we can't have 19th century solutions to 21st century problems. So I'm hoping that um, we as a global community will come to grips with that. And you'll know that one of the big issues people have been talking about is the reform of the international financial institutions. Those institutions were predicated at a time when the world said that each member state was responsible for its own economy, and all of it came down to fiscal rectitude. If you 
had fiscal rectitude, you would thrive. But no one told the hurricane or the cyclone or the drought about fiscal rectitude. A hurricane doesn't care. The Commonwealth Environment Ministers are meeting uh, on the sidelines of the UNGA. What are your expectations about the outcomes to resolve some of these challenges that you expressed? Well, we met yesterday, and it was a wonderful opportunity for the Commonwealth family to come together to share uh, the enormity of the problem, to share the solutions that our member states have been crafting individually but can collectively now take advantage of. We were able to talk about the fact that the uh, money that's needed is absolutely critical and there is the finance. I remember when we went to Kenya, the South African uh, Minister for Climate and Environment called it the F word. We have to deal with finance because unless we can come up with the money for adaptation, for mitigation, particularly for those countries who are most affected but contributed the least, we're not going to come to a solution. So at this ministerial meeting, we were talking about finance. We were talking about what we had to do in relation to the international financial institutions and the universal vulnerability index about which we have just spoken. But we were also talking about, so what are the solutions? The Secretariat has come up over the last seven years with a number of tools which we have been able to use with our member states to help us. Let's talk about the foreign affairs um, meeting along the sidelines of the UNGA. What are they looking at and what solution are they proffering in order for member states to implement to make things better for them? Well, we were really canvassing all the things that we've been talking about, about that tangled knot of exogenous shocks right. and how we are going to respond to them, not as simple individual countries, but as a family of nations with common cause. And so we've been looking at all the toolkits that the Commonwealth has created to help our countries in relation to good governance and the rule of law, to help us to deliver on our connectivity agenda. You will know that we hope that we will be able to drive up the $721 billion of intra-Commonwealth trade. We want that to be $2 trillion by 2030. But the question is, how are we going to do that? And so we have created the connectivity agenda where we have action groups with our countries coming together to look at the opportunities for green uh, economy, the blue economy, right. what we can do with our children because we've got 1.5 billion young people in the Commonwealth. They need jobs. They need education. They need support. And so what we've been looking at is how do we deliver on all of those and how do we come together as a Commonwealth family to support the multilateralism, which we know is absolutely critical if we are going to respond to the exogenous shocks that our countries now face. And many of the small states were telling us that their number one issue was climate change because for them... 
this existential threat is no longer a threat. It is what's happening to them today. And some of them were saying, we have to face the reality that some of our islands may not be here next year if the sea continues to rise and the hurricanes in continue to get, and cyclones to get bigger and bigger. No one forgets that uh, in uh, 2017, Maria almost wiped out the country of my birth, Dominica, with 226 uh, percent of their GDP. But neither do they forget that Irma literally destroyed Barbuda and the whole country had to be evacuated. All the people had to leave that island. And it's happening all over our world, in, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, in Southeast Asia. All of us are suffering. And so the drive was how do we, instead of having uh, a, 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 a single response, how do we get an integrated response? How, how can we holistically look at what we have to do and then bind together? Patricia Scotland is the Secretary General of the Commonwealth of Nations. She spoke with me from New York. The President of the International Committee of the Red Cross is calling for urgent action to help Sudanese refugees who fled the ongoing conflict into neighboring Chad. Mariana Spoljaric Edgar was recently in Chad to monitor the current humanitarian situation there. She's also calling on the international community to partner with the ICRC and other sister humanitarian groups to address the immediate needs of the refugees. She made the call on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. She called for proposals to address the long-term needs of the refugees, including access to clean water, food, and medical attention. I sat down with, with Mariana Spaljoric Edgar about her trip to Chad and her organization's response to the floods in Libya. She also spoke about recommendations for regulating weapon systems and the humanitarian crisis in Niger and other armed conflicts where the ICRC is providing assistance. What I saw is a humanitarian situation that is of very great concern and very urgent uh, to be addressed. What you see is thousands of people coming in from west of four into Chad on top of a small population. So what, while I was there, numbers were telling me that the current refugee population exceeds the local population ten times. The local infrastructure is not in a position to absorb these numbers, and many of them, if not most, are women and children. So we need to unite around um, you know, bringing in the resources for these people to be able to have enough food, enough medicine and shelter. All of this is urgent. And I, I really commend the generosity of Chad and all the neighboring countries in welcoming these refugees, but these countries will need assistance to take care of the refugees and to make sure that it doesn't create tensions. Is the ICRC sounding the alarm for other international partners to help with this? We do this together with our humanitarian partners that are also active globally, especially our partners from the UN system, but also others. 
it is an urgent situation. Funding is nowhere reaching the levels that we need. And if we compare it to 2003, the previous uh, conflict in Darfur, at that time we were capable of bringing much more assistance. Today we are not because our, all our programs in Africa are severely underfunded and the gap has risen eight times in the last five years. Let's go to Libya. You know, the flooding, uh, thousands of people are missing, dead. Um, many are displaced, many injured. What is the situation there and how is the response of the ICRC to this human uh, really tragedy? It is a tragedy. We had a small team of four people uh, in the city when it happened. Uh, we are now sending in support. Uh, we are providing medical assistance. We are helping hospitals. We are at the cusp of delivering food as well because people need food and they need shelter, those at least who have lost their houses. Logistically, the region is still difficult to reach because of the high level of uh, destruction. But we are doing everything we can either to deliver directly or through the National Red Crescent mm -hmm. Society. They are our primary partner at the moment. Talk to me about the humanita uh, humanitarian situation in Niger and um, the Sahel region uh, because there are concerns about uh, the influx of uh, autonomous weapons, um, particularly in the West African region as well, where weapons are brought in, extremists get these sophisticated weapons, they create instability and exacerbate the situation of uh, refugees. So mm -hmm. Talk to me about how the ICRC is working with your international partners to address some of these concerns. The ICRC is present in all the countries of the Sahel. It was my first mission when I took office, um, or a few weeks after I took office last October. I went to the north of Mali. What struck me is the, the deadly circle between poverty, violence, armed violence, and climate change impact. They are all overlapping and they are all increasingly harming the civilian population. A population that by about 80% depends on agriculture and livestock. We have to find a way of breaking through this cycle. There's no security response to the situation. We have to look at the socio-economic situation. We have to invest in socio-economic development in local infrastructure. We have to make sure that also the public institutions are capacitated and do deliver and prioritize basic services for the people. Without this, there will be no stabilization. Mariana Spaljoric Edgar is the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross or ICRC. She spoke with me from New York. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has underscored the vision for adapted crops and soils, or VAX, aimed at helping to find solutions to the long-term challenge of producing sustainable agricultural production. His remark comes as the U.S. President Joe Biden addressed Tuesday the United Nations General Assembly's high-level meeting in New York. Dr. Carrie Fowler, the U.S. Special Envoy for Global Food Security, was one of the key speakers at the launch of the report by the Atlantic Council entitled The Future of Food Security in Africa, The Agritech Solution. The report outlined new research and highlighted recommendations on agritech solutions. I sat down with Dr. Fowler to discuss our topics as the vision for adapted crops and soils or VAX, climate-resilient crops and healthy soils. 
We know that Africa faces a big food security problem, but it also faces a nutrition problem. And, um, you know, children in Africa, um, in many countries, are uh, the, the stunting rates for children are just enormous. In, in southern Africa, 30, 40, sometimes even up to 50% of the children under five are stunted. So it's both a problem of calories, which we've historically tried to address, but it's really a problem of balanced nutrition, the macro and the micronutrients. And you don't get all of those that you need from a single crop like maize, which is the dominant staple in southern Africa, for example. So one of the things that we thought was missing from this picture in a serious way was um, the contribution that traditional and indigenous crops in Africa could be playing to providing better nutrition for Africa. The legumes, the fruits, the vegetables, these are the kind of things that children, um, young children really need if they're going to avoid these serious health problems. So many of these crops, according to the African Union, have been underinvested in. They haven't been prioritized by any institution. The infrastructure, the incentives are there for the big major commodity crops, but not for these crops. And as a result, the yields are low. They may have other issues that, that farmers find unattractive or even that some consumers do. But these crops have been grown and eaten in Africa for thousands of years. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to prioritize these crops and to crowdsource in funding to address the yield and other production problems that these crops have. So we've, we've gone through, we've had a process together with the Africa Union and with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN to First of all, identify the crops that are most uh, have the most potential for providing nutrition in, in Africa and the ones of that subgroup, which are the ones that are going to do best in the future climates of Africa. And on the basis of that, we can make an informed decision of the uh, plant breeding investments that we're going to put forward. So that's, that's where we're going. We're working with African institutions, with African plant breeders to prioritize some of these crops, by the way. There's some fantastic crops. African yam bean, hyacinth bean, uh, lob, lob, which is also called loblob grass pea. Um, just a whole range of crops that are wonderful that can help build the soil, um, provide their own nitrogen with the legumes, and really be integrated in the food system. And if we prioritize those crops and we get the yields up, then they become uh, viable options for farmers to grow. And particularly for women farmers, because a lot of these crops are grown as household garden crops. And if we can, if we can promote these crops enough where they're, they're really are a viable option for the women, and we start to increase the nutrition for the women, that automatically increases it for the children, and we begin to have a healthy, viable, sustainable, more productive agricultural system. Talking about facts, talking about you know, the climate change, people say, is affecting agricultural production, undermining food security, worsening the situation, increasing hunger among people. How is the U.S. government helping, you know, in working with the African Union and some of these African countries to bolster the agricultural production? Because most of them are, you know, they are not mechanized farming, they are subsistence farming, uh, they are too small, and sometimes they don't even have money to expand. What they are doing. So how do you help in that, in that regard? Well, we're doing a couple of things. One is that we, we know there's no such thing as food security based on bad soil and unadapted crops. And the soil is related to climate change in a, in a really clear way. I'll give you a clear example of that. 
And that is that soils that are depleted of organic material that are eroded and degraded soils, they can't hold moisture. So when climate change or just bad weather comes along and you get a drought, such as you may be getting this year with El Nino coming in, and you have soils that are poor that can't hold the moisture that falls from the sky, then you're really in trouble. But if we can build the African soils, help build those soils through use of legumes and crop rotations and a lot of other methods, and we give farmers uh, the tools for understanding those crops. We're working on apps, telephone apps, and there are uh, 650 million uh, accounts in Africa for cell phone usage. But if we can help them understand better what their soils are, what the potentials are there, what the nutrient losses are there, or deficiencies rather, um, then we can improve management and that will improve the resilience of the farm system, even at the local smallholder level, to climate change. So we're trying to build better soils and we're trying to build adapted crops. And those are the two things we can talk all day about every other problem in the farm system. But poor soils, unadapted crops, no food security. So we've got to address both of those. Dr. Kari Fowler is the U.S. Special Envoy for Global Food Security. He spoke with me from New York. In Zambia, the lawyer for former President Edgar Lungu says it is illegal for the police to attempt to prevent him from jogging. Makebe Zulu says he plans to challenge efforts by the police to stop the former president from his routine Saturday exercise. His remarks come after the police issued a statement warning supporters of the former president from disturbing public peace and illegal assembly. The police described the former president's activity as, quote, political activism and asked him to seek approval for future events. But Makebe Zulu, former president Edgar Lungu's lawyer, tells me that the police do not have a constitutional mandate to prevent the former president from jogging. It started way back at the time when uh, the president was going for the inauguration ceremony for President Nagagwa in Zimbabwe. There were attempts at the airport to stop him from uh, attending to that event, but they didn't succeed. The next attempt was to stop him from uh, flying to the Copper Belt where he had uh, a church service, but they couldn't uh, manage. But uh, whilst on the Copper Belt, they managed to stop the church service from taking off and said uh, that there was no permit for the assembly. That's uh, the church service itself. The next thing that happened, uh, the former president was invited in Seoul for a peace summit. Uh, when he was at the airport, they stopped him from traveling, saying that uh, he did not notify or get uh, permission from government. And uh, we have since challenged that in court to say he does not need to inform government on a trip such as that one. Makebi, does that mean that the, yes, the former president will continue jogging irrespective of the concerns expressed by the police? that uh, there's, there's a political activity related to the jogging and there's sloganeering during his jogging. And that is strange because this is something that he has done since time immemorial, uh, jogging. But they choose to look at it as a cause for them to be worried in that uh, he, his popularity is ever on the increase because now people are able to compare between what he did and what the current president is doing. And uh, the current government seems to want to suggest that 
he can't move from his house. That's what they seem to want to suggest. They stop him from attending uh, a church service in another province. Now they are closing in and wanting to stop him from just the only activity that he embarks on around, and that is jogging. And that that is unacceptable. And uh, well, from a legal point of view, he will continue jogging because he doesn't need their permission. If they have to come and stop him, let them do so, and we'll challenge that action in court. Hmm. So let me ask you this, because the police, in expressing concern about what was happening, that supporters of the former president tend to act in to block streets, disturbing public peace, and preventing local businesses or those who do business along the road where the president jogs, blocking traffic and causing mayhem, literally. Uh, how do you address that concern? Peter. Peter, that has not been there. There is not one single docket, one single complaint that has been uh, given to any police station as regards the blocking of traffic along the road. That has not been done. If at all it was so, they would have said such and such a person has complained that on this particular day, uh, traffic was blocked and it was an inconvenience to them. In any event, this is not a event. It's a once-off event, once every week. And uh, if you look, go, you are going to walk the streets of Lusaka, on a Saturday morning, uh, you will find that a lot of people are jogging. That will mean that millions or thousands of people will have to be notifying the police every weekend to say we're going jogging. He's not the only one who does that. So, so moving forward, um, are you saying that the former president will continue jogging irrespective of the warning? that the police have given and what happens to the supporters when they join him jogging which the police have expressed concern about as well what the police are doing is illegal so we shall not uh, will not obey an unlawful dis uh, 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 warning as it were it only has to be within the the, the, the four corners of the law for it to be appropriate the police are only responding to the, the political outcry of the UPND and not necessarily to the law. Their job is to maintain law and order. If the police are of the view that uh, the jogging incidences, which they are aware of, is causing traffic um, jams along the way, their job is to come and control the flow of traffic whilst respecting each road user's right to use the road. That is their job. Their job is not to stop it, but to control how it is done. That is what they ought to do. Makebi Zulu is lawyer for former Zambian President Edgar Lungu. He spoke with me from the capital, Lusaka. In South Africa, Rise Mzanzi, a new opposition political party, plans its maiden convention next week. The meeting will enable the new party to choose its leaders ahead of the next general election. Established in April 2020, established in April 2023, the new party says its approach of inclusive politics will attract the youth and citizens dissatisfied with the leading political parties, including the governing African National Congress, or ANC, and the main opposition Democratic Alliance, or DA. This, as some opposition groups seek to form an alliance with the aim of wrestling power from the ANC. For more about Rise Nsamzi and its coming progress, as well as its electoral prospects, I reach party leader Songezo Zibi. Most South Africans don't vote. And through the 
through the course of last year, we, we sought to understand why they do not choose any of the political parties. And, and it came down to, to political culture and political style, uh, organizing style in particular, political culture, and the manner in which you frame the, the issues that affect their lives politically. And also the level of engagement and ongoing uh, a conversation in the community before, during, and after an election. And we could see that no other political party is doing this, and we decided to do it. The second and last reason is that we got to understand the South Africans' choice uh, of, of political orientation, which is social democratic. <clears throat> and we saw we've chosen social democratic politics and, and social democratic policy choices. So if we're in the US, we'd be kind of more with Bernie Sanders. Uh, than the Democrats and, and so on. Why do you think they would choose you rather than go with the so-called the big boys, the ANC, the DA, the EFF? Why would they choose your party to vote for you? Because I've already made a choice. So let me give you some numbers to put for the listeners in perspective. So in, in 2021, we had local government elections here, municipal elections. There were 41 million eligible voters. 28 million didn't turn up to vote. It's not just people that have not voted or not registered. 14 million of them were not registered. Now, the 14 million registered voters alone are more than all the voters who voted put together in that election. So in other words, you have people who have voted before or who are registered to vote and have decided not to vote anymore. So they've made that choice already. The question is, how do you get them to vote? And that's what we've basically, that's the holy grail we've sought to unlock, and we believe we have found it. There is this DA-led effort to unite all the opposition minors, the EFF, to form a formidable force to, as they say, to dislodge the ANC from government. Why are you not joining them? And have you been approached? I heard you were approached, but you rebuffed them. Why are you not joining if you have the same objective, which is to wrestle power from the ANC, the governing party? Because we would not be solving the reason why people don't vote. People are not staying away from the polls because there are too many political parties. In fact, they're not just choosing not to vote for the ANC, they're choosing not to vote for anybody. And it all comes to political style. Let me make an example. The culture in South Africa is to go to voters or to people in communities and say, voters, we are different to the other guys. If you vote for us, we will sort out your lives after the election. That's a bad message. It doesn't work. So what we do is we convince people that the change lies with them. They need to build their own political alternative. And politics needs to be about the issues that affect them daily. And the activism needs to drive those issues on a daily basis. Nobody does that in South Africa today, as I speak to you. There is a, a, a language of an exchange between political parties and, vo and, and voters where they say, why should we trust you? What will you do for us? We get asked the same question. And we say the counterintuitive thing. We say, we're not going to do anything for you. We are going to do it together because we are fed up like you. We are not here to sort out your life. We all need to stand up. That is why the name of our organization is what it is. If you don't stand up, none of this changes. Your party is 
going to organize its first convention next week. What is the message here and what should South Africans expect from this convention? What they should expect is a political declaration and later a political manifesto that reflects the issues people are dealing with in their daily lives every day and they are formulated that way. There are six themes of discussion next weekend. It's family, community, governance, the economy, uh, it is nation building and climate change, six themes. You can look at uh, most political parties in South Africa, family and community are not there. And yet when people talk to us, they spend 95% of the conversation telling us about their families, taking up, uh, telling us about the issues in the community and so on. But that's not the language of South African politics at all. It's a language of promises about jobs and, and those kind of things. Uh, so we've decided to to, form, to change the political language as well. Songezo Zibi is leader of South Africa's opposition party Rise in Sanzi. He spoke with me from Johannesburg, South Africa. In Uganda, an opposition lawmaker says a court ruling that invalidates his removal as parliamentary commissioner shows justice can be attained in the East African country. Francis Zaki is a prominent member of the opposition party National Unity Platform. He says it was illegal for his colleagues to vote to strip him of his position in the lawmaking body. In its ruling, the court says Anita Amon, who is the current Speaker of Parliament, violated the principles of justice. That's because she did not recuse herself from the case while she was the complainant as deputy speaker at the time and presider of the case to strip Zaki of his position. Among had accused Zaki of insulting her on social media platforms. But in reaction to the court ruling, Zaki tells me that the move to strip him of his position was aimed at silencing him, which he contends undermines constitutional guarantees of freedom of speech. First and foremost, this may means that uh, we are freedom fighters. We are fighting for the rule of law in Uganda because it is lacking. But as you know, the judiciary of this country is just like um, the story of the dead crook that it is correct twice a day. And today it has been correct to give us a correct ruling. And we are really, really happy that at least justice has been served on me. The speaker accused you of uh, insulting her on social media platforms. Some people are wondering, why would you insult the speaker of parliament? If you have any issues with her, why don't you approach her? Yeah, first and foremost, we, we must have freedom of expression. Each and everyone must be able to express themselves freely. So it shouldn't matter that when I talk about you, I should first, you know, approach you, and then I'm like, you know, should I say A, B, C, D? No. We must be free in the way we speak, in the way we act. We must be free as long as you're not infringing on someone's rights. So that alleged social media post, of course, it is just alleged. But it's because I was, she was not happy with me being in the commission. It's the reason as to why she did the mob justice on me. And I'm very, very happy that at least justice has been served. Well, some people are suggesting that calling her a dictator and that she violates mm. the law uh, is rather un uncharitable as a member of parliament and as somebody who, you know, is the third most powerful person in Uganda. 
uh, that really brings disrepute and dishonor to the office of parliament. Yeah, you know, Peter, whenever someone has powers, just like you've said that she's number three in hierarchy, in Uganda, when someone has powers, they think they are going to use that power to violate the rights of others. So power absolutely corrupts, and she has been used to do very many things on other Ugandans, just like I'm a torture victim. My case has taken over 17 months without, you know, getting a ruling by, you know, the power she has. That's what has, she has been doing to me. So today we've gotten a ruling and I'm really very, very happy. And I think it is serving as, a, as an example to so many other who have been quiet, those who have been violated by that same speaker of parliament. So today I think we are really happy as Ugandans because at least the third most powerful person in this country who violates the rights of Ugandans, at least she has been touched because she has been behaving as the untouchable. What do you say to those who are saying that accusing each member who voted against you of collecting a bribe or a kickback of six million shillings uh, is unfounded and that you should prove that they collected such money? Peter, it's not the first time Parliament has been giving bribes to members of Parliament. It has happened several times. During the age limit debate, they gave us five millions. I remember that time when it was given to us, and some of us returned it. We are very few members of Parliament who can return bribes. So it has been done, and it has always been done. This is not the first time. It has been done several times. Even it has been done. Actually, even during COVID, they gave us a bribe of 29 millions and we returned that money. I remember myself and my president, uh, formerly when he was still an honorable member of parliament, we returned that money. It was a bribe, you know. They never wanted us to move and they were giving us money to give to our constituents, yet they are not allowing us to move. So that was a bribe. Even this time, it has been done. And we have all the evidence. The only thing that we cannot bring out is the what one one solid member of parliament who is brave enough to present that because we are very few people who can return bribes in this country. Francis Zake is a member of the Ugandan parliament and a leading member of the opposition national unity platform. He spoke with me from the Ugandan capital, Kampala. <laughs> The African Bar Association is calling for an internal investigation into assault of one of its leading members by agents of the Department of State Security Services in Edo State. The group called on the authorities of the organization to prosecute the agent for violating the fundamental right of attorney Douglas Ogbankwa. Local media reports attend Ogbankwa, a human rights defender and the director of strategic communications of the African Bar Association, was assaulted at the office of the DSS while representing his client. For more reaction and details, I reach attorney Douglas Ogbankwa. I was on a scheduled uh, visit to the State Security Service uh, um, Office at Medicine uh, Command with my client. And they actually wanted my client to come and um, see the officers and make statements. And I, I told them that their laws are supposed to be there. So that was what caused the crisis, and eventually, in fact, all of the professional intelligence, they did come out of the state security services to the secret service in Nigeria. Um, 
um, descended on me with his voice, about eight boys. They actually took me away to their inception, uh, 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 pulled me away from the ground on the first floor. I was dressed like a lawyer, wearing a suit with our traditional regalia. And um, when I stood up and asked him if I reported the matter to the president, that the president was here, this, he actually said with so much impunity that they are the president boys and that I can go to anywhere and nothing will happen. So what is your next line of action? Because I understand civil society groups, um, the, even the African Bar Association has condemned the assault. Uh, yeah, very well. I actually am the director of strategic communications of the African Bar Association, and they know so if such a thing can happen to a lawyer of my place, what will happen to the nuclear in the street? That's really my interest in this matter. The, the, the poor woman selling water on the road, the woman selling fruits, the bus driver, uh, the, 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 the street cheaper. And so uh, we've heard so much about um, and some of these um, shenanigans by these organizations and our concern. I don't have anything against them. As a matter of fact, I am a stakeholder in the nation building process. I have, I'm surprised because I have a very cordial relationship with them. So, but the way they went about it, it was like they are trying to test the waters. And so if we are not able to tackle it now, then they will begin to attack every single lawyer, doctor. And so it, it is actually like a, like a, like a flagship. I would need to sniff it in the board. I, I know that their hierarchy may not have approved of this. But those people who did it, they should identify that the latest interdicted tried and if found this, they should be freed from service to serve as a deterrent for others. Are you asking for the DSS to conduct an internal investigation over what happened? They should conduct an internal review of the of the of, of the incident. And thankfully, I, I, I saw, I, I, I can confirm that the CCTV cameras were working and were in good condition that day. So they should review it. And if those people are found to have gotten outside their standard operational procedures, then they should be disciplined with the highest level of discipline that they could ever have to be disciplined. There are nine of them altogether. Are you yes. saying, based on your interactions with them over the years, this is not a standard operating? It is not a standard operational procedure. To be very frank, you know, I I, I am surprised. Um, it's an anomaly. I must say so. You know, so I believe quite frankly that um, there are now a new set of uh, boys who claim to be the president boys. I know the president, um, President Bolabetinibu, the stickler for the rule of law process fundamental human rights and for the right thing to be done and they trying to use the name of the president i find it very um, um, very um, unacceptable and i think um the president can do well by actually putting them in their place and so that tomorrow no person can come it may not just be the dss can be any organization um nigeria has been a country that has swamped in a lot of human rights violations over the years, and a lot of things have been seared under the carpet. They want to use this case to be able to open up the space for people to express their views. Um, we are not living in a military rule. When they took over in uh, those countries around, we condemned them 
and we stood with the Democratic Party because, as far as we are concerned, freedom, respect for fundamental human rights, and respect for the rule of law are really those things that make a human being a human being. So any person, no matter how highly placed, that will want to come and say is a human being is not fit to be in the system. And they should actually be charged to court after their dismissal for bringing shame to the same. Attorney Douglas Ogbankwa is a human rights defender and the director of strategic communications of the African Bar Association. He spoke with me from the Nigerian capital, Abuja. You are listening to Nightland Africa on the English to Africa service of The Voice of America. I'm your host, Peter Clotin, in Washington, D.C. And coming up in the second half of Nightland Africa, the Saturday music spot from our collection of music from the continent. Right now, it's time for music from our African collection. Jabala, jabala, jabala. Ba 
music from the continent and we hope you enjoyed it. Nightland Africa comes to you on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC from the English service of the Voice of America. And from the rest of the Nightland team, including producer Douglas Impuga, we say a big thank you for joining us tonight. And remember, as the elders say, you do not teach the parts of the forest to an old gorilla. I'm your host, Peter Clotin, Washington.